Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. Good to see you all. Bringing sheaves with them. Do you remember that old hymn, Bringing in the Sheaves? I, as a kid, remember thinking that was a hilarious song because I thought they were singing Bringing in the Cheese. (laughs) And uh, ever since then, anytime I'm like, just a confession, anytime I'm like making nachos, I'm singing Bringing in the Cheese, Bringing in the Cheese. That's, it's sheaves, so... Um, We are, during this season of Lent, walking through various psalms, which, uh, as we've said, psalms are the only part of the Bible not meant to be read, but meant to be prayed. And so we are learning uh, together again how to pray. And so Psalm 26, 126, as you just heard, is a really short uh, psalm, only six verses, Um, but it has really big things to teach us. And so we're going to look at this psalm in its entirety this morning, all six verses. So you can turn there if you'd like. Um, As you do that, I performed my first wedding when I was 21 years old. And uh, Jen and I weren't married yet. I don't even think we were dating yet. Um, But I was a youth pastor and a couple of friends were getting married and asked me to do the ceremony. And I thought, well, if I have to go to a wedding, might as well get paid to do it. And uh, I did. And so um, that was a long time ago. I've lost track, but I would guess that in the last 20 years or so, I think I've done somewhere between 120 and 130 weddings. Um, And what that means is that I've heard a lot of toasts. See, at most weddings, you remember, like, the first round of toasts happens at the rehearsal dinner the night before, and the father of the groom and some of the wedding party will give their toasts, and then the next day, after the ceremony, during the reception, there's this whole other round of toasts with the father of the bride and the best man and the maid of honor and that sort of thing. So just stay with me here. At eight to ten toasts per wedding between 120, 120, 130 weddings, I've heard at least 1,000, maybe 1,300 toasts uh, in the last 20 years. Most of them are terrible. (laughs) And you know this, don't you? A couple dozen, I would say, are memorable, and a very few of them are pretty good. Um, But after sitting through 1,000 toasts, I would still say, My favorite, and maybe the best one I've ever heard, was at our wedding. When Jen and I got married in 2004, 17 and a half years ago, the toast that my best man gave, uh, I think will go down as the best wedding toast ever given. Do you want to watch it? You do, don't you? All right, we don't have time to watch the whole thing, but let me show you the first minute or so. Again, this is 2004, and uh, this is Jeff, my best friend from high school and college. Beautiful, beautiful day. (laughs) Peter and Jeff, this is a big day for you, and it's a big day for our two countries, too. (laughs) America and our neighbor from the north, Canada. Now, I've known for a long time that uh, 
<laughs> the American dollar seems to go a little bit further when we're up in America. We're in Canada. Canadians seem to be a little bit less back from us. This is probably never more true than today. <laughs> And in exchange for all of this, we give you back Peter. <laughs> That's good. We can stop there. Uh, you can't watch the rest because right after this, I walked on stage and slapped him in the face. <laughs> but uh, so Jeff goes on to celebrate the possibility that. The love between Jen and I could be a bridge between our two nations and ultimately proposes a toast to North American pride and we all drank to world peace. And so, um, pretty epic. Now, here's why I bring this up. Um, when we give a toast at a wedding, there's a couple things that we're trying to do. Um, first, we're taking a moment to pause and to reflect and to try to put into words our feelings of gratitude and appreciation towards whoever it is we're toasting, the bride or groom or whatever. And we do this oftentimes by looking back and by sharing memories, by telling stories of the good times that we've had together. And then there's another thing that we're doing in a toast, and that's the part where everybody kind of raises the glass. And it's what we're trying to do is gather up all of the love of the family and friends that are in the room and all of the best wishes that are represented by this group of people and essentially offer that love and best wishes as a gift to the couple. And so we raise a glass and say something like to a long and happy life together or something like that. Or the old Irish wedding toast that I love. Here's to your coffins. May they be made of hundred-year-old oaks, which we will plant tomorrow. <laughs> you can use that. It'll be good. Um, so if you think about it, toasting in some ways is equal parts expressing our gratitude for the past as well as sharing our hopes and dreams for the future. So maybe you see where I'm going this morning. Toasting is a form of prayer. A toast isn't a lecture or a lesson. A toast isn't a sermon or a sales pitch. A toast is something like a prayer. And that's really what we see when we come to Psalm 126. That the psalmist is essentially, he's written a toast for the community of Israel to sing, to pray, to declare to one another and ultimately to God. And so as we walk through this brief psalm, you'll notice that he spends the first three verses reminiscing about the good old days. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. I love that. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. And so the psalm starts by reminiscing about the good old days. And not in like a pathetic Uncle Rico sort of way, right? Where you're stuck in the past and can't move on. Not that kind of reminiscing. 
the kind of reminiscing that draws strength by recalling the ways that God has been faithful to us throughout the past. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, I told you one of the most frequently given commandments in the Bible is remember. God is constantly telling his people, don't forget to remember. And so this psalm begins by doing that. God's people together remembering, reminiscing, celebrating his faithfulness to them. Now, what's important to note is that Psalm 126 is one of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are the 15 Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134. And Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent, literally means Psalms of Rising or the Psalms of Going Up. And so uh, Hebrew tradition suggests that the 15 Psalms of Ascent correlate to the 15 steps that led up to the temple where God's people would go and worship. And so Psalm 126 is one that the Hebrew people would sing as they were on this journey to Jerusalem, ultimately to the temple, that several times a year they would make from all over the land they would come for these giant festivals. And so the city of Jerusalem sits on the top of a hill, and so as they ascended the hill, or as they climbed the steps up to, up to the temple, they would sing these psalms of ascent together. And so they're pilgrim songs, they're road trip songs. They're songs that cover uh, a vast uh, span of topics. But this song, particularly, as the pilgrims would sing it, they would remember and reminisce as an expression of worship. Reminiscing can be a way of worshiping. They're making sure that they don't forget to remember. And what we can see is that what they're remembering is back when times were good. We were like those who dreamed He's not talking about uh, the dream you had last night. He's really talking more about the way we would use the phrase living the dream. When life is just so good, I have to pinch myself. Those moments, however few and far between they may be, where it's like we are living the dream. Is this real life? When life is so good, notice in verse 2, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. When was the last time that happened to you? When's the last time you laughed so hard that it hurt? When you thought you were going to pee your pants? Or maybe you did. <laughs> That's what this psalm is encouraging us to reminisce about. Those hilarious moments of laughter and joy that come every once in a while. The psalmist says, don't forget to remember those moments. Now, we aren't, we aren't sure exactly when in Israel's history all this went down. What we're told is the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. So they recognize that whatever it is that's happened, God is ultimately the source of the joy and the laughter that was in their hearts. 
So it doesn't mean they were like having a really, like there's church laughter and then there's real laughter, right? <laughs> you got your church friends, you got your real friends. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. What, what we're saying is that the real laughter, the real joy, the real party is a gift from the real God. And we aren't sure exactly which events in this uh, in Israel's history, this psalm is referring to, because there's a number of times where God showed up, he intervened, he restored his people's fortunes, he did great things for them. He does that a lot. So we don't know exactly when or where or about what this psalm was written, but that's okay, and here's why. This psalm isn't really about what happened. It's about what happens. It's about what always happens. See, the first half of the song is all about joy and laughing, and celebration. And the second half of the psalm is about sorrow, and tears, and pain. And so this is where the toast gets a little more somber, a little bit more serious. Verse four, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Not cheese, sheaves. <laughs> this is a sheave. If you don't know, sheaves are bundles of wheat or grain. Before they were centerpieces at hipster weddings, they were a way of bringing home the grain from your day at work out in the field. Sheaves are basically symbols of abundance. The seeds that you've planted have grown up into food, which re represents life, sustenance for your family. And so ultimately, this vision of sheaves, the psalm ends on a high note. The toast is to prosperity and happiness. But it doesn't happen that quickly. Because notice what happens first. Verse four, restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. The Negev is a dry and barren desert in Israel. As you can see, it's a place where nothing grows. The psalm starts by reminiscing about the good times, but apparently good times don't always last. Because Israel now finds herself in the desert. Dry, thirsty, lacking, wanting. Where they were once laughing until it hurt, they're now crying themselves to sleep every night. And this is what happens. Joy gives way to sorrow. And this is where the psalm starts messing with me a little bit. Maybe it starts messing with you as well because I really like the first part with all the laughing and the joy. I don't like this part as much. But we have three verses on joy and three verses on sorrow. The psalm gives half of its time to the good times and half to the bad times. I don't know if we can actually do the math, but that sounds about right to me. And this is a pattern that you'll notice all throughout the book of Psalms. Again, as a guide, of prayer, a guide for prayer, these Psalms are meant to inform the way that we relate to God the way that we see him, the way that we approach him, the way that we posture ourselves before him. 
And so part of what I think this psalm is teaching us about prayer is that prayer is meant to encompass the entire spectrum of human experience. In some ways, it seeks to both, to normalize both joy and sorrow. Now, remember, again, verse six ends with the sheaves, the symbol of abundance. So think about that word abundance. Is there a Bible verse that you can think of that talks about abundance? John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come to give you life. In the NIV, it says that you may have life and have it to the full, but in the King James, the one you might know, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I like how Peterson puts it in the message, that you will have more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Um, over the past few years, my understanding of the biblical notion of abundance has changed quite a bit. Because my old view was, I think, based on the assumption that God's deepest desire was for me to be happy. And what I've come to realize is that I think abundance is meant to represent not just the good times, but the entire spectrum of human experience. Not just the good life, but more life. And if these, these, this is the, command, or the uh, promise of Jesus, the invitation of the gospel, it makes sense that he would come to bring the fullness of life. And when we look at his life, his human experience, what do we see? We see the full range from the horrors of crucifixion to the glories of resurrection. Which makes me wonder if we can expect the same. If that is a picture of abundant life. There's a whole bunch of places in scripture we could go to see this more clearly. One of them is in the book of Ezekiel where God is giving his people a vision for what their life will be like with him one day what he's going to do for them. Let me read this for you. Ezekiel 11, God says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Hold that up there for a sec. Notice what God says he's going to do for his people when he makes them new, when he births them again. He wants to replace their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. So I think something about the abundant life that God desires for his people has to do with learning how to feel. He wants to take hard closed off concrete hearts of stone and transform them 
into living, feeling, beating hearts of flesh. God wants his people to learn how to feel. Now, we could go down the route of various personality tests, that sort of thing. If you know Myers-Briggs, you know there's a thinker-feeler uh, distinction. And uh, if you had to choose, just out of curiosity, you'd say, I'm mostly a thinker or mostly a feeler. I'm curious what you say. How many would say, I'm a thinker, primarily? Okay, and how many would say, I'm a feeler? A few more feelers. Um, here's what's interesting to me and what you need to know about me. I'm thinker really, really far on that end of the spectrum to the point where I had um, a therapist ask me if I know how to feel. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Because um, how would you know? So... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not that thinking's bad, feeling's good, or vice versa. The point is, and my suspicion, is that maybe what God is most interested in isn't making us Christians, but making us fully human and inviting us into the full human experience for which he created and redeemed us. And so again, I have to confess, this is something I know very, very little about. Um, and if you're new here, I apologize, because this will feel like TMI. But um, a few days ago, I celebrated a thousand days of sobriety. And uh, I appreciate the texts and the cards and the notes that many of you sent. Lee Nyberg made me a cake. My birthday is April 24th. Um, it's not too early to start thinking about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, about four years ago, my doctor diagnosed me with a condition that I knew very well that I had, severe alcohol use disorder. And to um, put a positive spin on it, I was really good at drinking. Um, <laughs> In fact, I was so good, I realized recently, and this was just a random occurrence, that uh, in the course of my life, I've had, I've had drinks at both the highest and the lowest bars on earth. And I didn't even try to. This is the ozone in Hong Kong. It's the highest bar in the world. It's on the 118th floor of the Ritz-Carlton. It's the 11th tallest building in the world, and the bar is at 1,600 feet above ground. The view looks like you're looking out of an airplane into a ma major city. You're looking from a skyscraper down on other skyscrapers, and uh, it's terrifying. I drank there. <laughs> this is the lowest bar in the world. This is at the Dead Sea. <laughs> it's on the shore. Uh, of Kaliah Beach, Palestinian West Bank of Israel. It's 1,400 feet below sea level. I drank there with some of you. <laughs> I drank all over the world, including the world's highest bar, the world's lowest bar, but here's the irony that I realized recently. The reason I drank so much at all was to avoid facing any highs or lows 
in my life. Because alcohol, for me, was a way of numbing, a way of dealing, a way of escaping, a way of leveling, to take away the highs, to take away the lows, and let me just be without having to feel. So for the last thousand days, I've been learning how to feel. It hasn't been pretty. It hasn't been easy. You can ask Jen and you can ask the staff. It's uh, not a pretty thing to watch. I've still got a ways to go. But I receive every single day now as a gift of incredible gratitude. Because abundant life isn't just marked by joy, it isn't just marked by sorrow, and it isn't marked by the plateau. It's marked by the entire spectrum of human experience. And so many of us, especially the men in the room, have this tendency, this conditioning to stuff it down. And to take whatever we're feeling and the tears that want to come and just to stuff them. And what this psalm tells us in its incredible wisdom is don't stuff your tears, but do this instead. Notice in verse 4, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. What do you do with your tears? Don't stuff them. Sow them. It's a gardening image. Plant your tears in the soil. And the crazy paradoxical promise is that those who plant their tears will reap sheaves of joy. So again, this psalm isn't about what happened. It's about what always happens. In the world of ecology, there's an idea called living systems theory. And it's a general theory about the way all kinds of living organisms relate to one another. And so uh, a living system includes everything from a single cell to a flower garden to an extended family to a rainforest to the European Union. These are all examples of systems made out of living things. We know this. Another thing we know is that according to living systems theory, every single living thing will experience damage. There's nothing on earth that gets to go through life as a living thing without being injured in some way. Life, in some way, hurts. And we know this applies to humans as well, including Christians. It's impossible to go through life without being damaged. Our bodies get banged up, our hearts get broken, we're betrayed and we lose our ability to trust or whatever it is, to be alive is to be traumatized. Uh, We also know, according to living systems theory, that there's basically three possible outcomes when it comes to living organisms being damaged. First, it dies. Second, it becomes chronically compromised and limps through the rest of its life in pain. Or third, 
it becomes strengthened precisely at the point of injury. Again, this applies from single cells all the way to the EU. It includes you and your mind and your body and your spirit and your relationships. And at the end of this damage, there's death, there's compromise, or there's redemption. And the truth is that all of us know people that represent each of these three categories, don't we? We know people who have given up and rolled over and died, so to speak. We know people who have become bitter and resentful and go through the rest of their life with a limp. Then we know people who in the wake of the damage, the loss, the pain, the suffering, have given themselves to the difficult work of healing and forgiveness and have become stronger precisely at the point of injury. I've shown you this before, but I love the ancient Japanese art form of kintsugi. It's the artistic technique of filling the broken cracks in a piece of pottery with gold. And in the end, the pot isn't just restored in terms of functionality, but it's actually transformed into something stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. I don't know about you, but I want to be that kind of person. I know I can't avoid pain and loss and damage and suffering. But I want to be a man who comes out on the other side more complete and more human than I was before. Which is why this psalm teaches us to plant our tears. How? By praying. We plant our tears by turning towards God and bringing them to him. And what we find is as we plant our tears through prayer, it's the beginning of a long and often painful process of being put back together again. And so my encouragement to you this morning, church, as you join me on this journey, learning to feel, learning to be human, maybe it just begins with paying attention. Paying attention to those places within you that are uncomfortable or unpleasant feelings you'd rather not engage and asking if maybe there's something there that God has for you. Got to give you a little bit of Beekner before we go. It's Frederick Beekner on tears. You never know what may cause them. The sight of the Atlantic Ocean can do it, or a piece of music, or a face you've never seen before. A pair of somebody's old shoes can do it, 
almost any movie made before the great sadness that came over the world after the Second World War. A horse cantering across a meadow, the high school basketball team running out onto the gym floor at the start of the game. You can never be sure, but of this, you can be sure. Whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, it is well to pay the closest attention. They're not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. So Jesus didn't come to deliver us from humanity, but to accompany us into it. To join us in all, the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly, and to use it as the raw material to redeem our lives. So church, let's raise a glass (laughs) and drink to the God who fills his people with an abundant life. Amy's going to come and lead us to the table this morning.